Please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. I had originally, when I was going through Daniel, thought, you know, I'll just do one, one sermon per chapter. But there are some chapters where it, it's definitely helpful to slow down. And so this will be the last, chap, the last sermon on Daniel 7. Next week will be the evening service. And um, then in December, or I guess there'll be one more, and eventually we'll be getting back to Daniel. I don't think it will be to till the... Um, December. Okay. I just, you ever have those moments when you realize you don't know what you're saying? I'm not quite sure. I just, yeah, I I realize, I think what I said was just absolute gibberish, but there'll be a Thanksgiving service next week and we'll get back to uh, Daniel in December. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, wonderful. It's good to be loved. So Daniel 7 is full of mystery. And last week in the morning, we looked at this mystery. Who is this son of man figure? And we really didn't spend much time in Daniel. If you remember, instead, we looked at the rest of Scripture to see that the son of man was the son of God, who is the returning king, who will be coming back in all of his glory. And yet... As you look at Daniel, he has a lot to say about the Son of Man, too. Verses that we didn't explore last time. So let's ask the question again. Who is the Son of Man? And we're going to read verses 13 through the end of the chapter in just a minute. But I want to set it up because what you see here is a vision and an explanation. And in fact, when I went to seminary, one of the professors who had just come to Westminster was a guy named Greg Beale, and he wrote this book called The New Testament Biblical Theology. It's about that thick. And uh, although it says New Testament, there's a lot of Old Testament in it. And so somehow, in his class on Acts and Paul, we were in Daniel 7. Go figure. I mean, it's all connected, right? So, but, and he said, you know, this, this is how the Bible works. There's visions, and the vision is what the prophet or the person sees. And then there's an explanation that tells you the meaning of the vision. And so he says, um, right, so let's look at this passage and read the vision and read the explanation and then find out who the Son of Man is. So I want you to be paying very careful attention as we read through the rest of Daniel 7 and say, okay, from Daniel, who is the Son of Man? Let's give reverent attention to God's word. Daniel 7 and verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the four beasts, the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, 
exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet and about the ten horns that had come that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth. It shall trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. This is God's word. If the answer of a dream is revealed in the explanation, then the Son of Man must be... Someone? What was it talking about? Mentioned three times. Well, let's look at verse 18. After, this, after the four beasts, uh, which are four kings, who arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Who's the Son of Man? What does it say? I, I heard someone's the saints of the Most High, right? And you see that in verse twenty-two, the Ancient of Days comes, and the time when the saints possess the kingdom. And twenty-seven, again, you'll see the kingdom will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Daniel's saying that the Son of Man of the saints, and yet Jesus claims that he fulfills the Son of Man's passages. Now, well, who is right? Well, he's Lord of the Scriptures, right? So, so we know that Jesus is right. We know that whoever said Jesus, yes, your answer is correct. But there are also layers of meaning in passages, especially prophetic passages, that if you don't dig, if you just kind of skip over them, you miss them. And these layers of meaning, uh, when you understand them properly, do not contradict each other, rather enhance your understanding of God's word. And in this case, realize that we as the saints are more closely connected to the kingdom and the struggle than might otherwise appear. 
So what I want us to look today is, again, ask just who are the saints and the Son of Man and Daniel, and then, and then see how it connects to our Lord to fill out this picture of the Son of Man. So did you know that there's even a question of who the saints are? In prophecy, there's always more than one answer, right? And there's actually a reason. I'm going to actually bring you through this for a reason, okay? It's not just because I want to expose you to a debate that's going on in commentaries. But the words, the saints, have at least two interpretations, because it's the word Kadesh, which is holy. Larry would tell me it's actually Aramaic, so, you know, it's similar, but, but a little different. But it literally means the holy ones. And the holy ones could actually be one or two things. In fact, most scholars today, especially those outside of um, conservative circles, believe that these holy ones are not the people of God, but they are angels. Now, I, I, remember, I remember when I first read that, I just thought, oh, come on, give me a break. Do you always try to find a meaning that disrupts the big picture of God? Um, I just was a little bit frustrated. But, you know, I, I listened with, tried to listen with humility and went back and thought, you know, there's... There's actually at least a somewhat decent argument here, because in Daniel, holy ones often refer to angelic beings. So if you go to chapter four, verse 13, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he says, I saw in the vision of my head as I lay in bed and behold, a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven. That's an angel who's proclaiming a message. If you if you go back to chapter eight in verse 13, once again, Daniel is hearing something. And he says, then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke. These are angels, holy ones speaking to Daniel. Same word as the ESV translates saints. Then if you go to chapter 10, you're confronted with this terrifying vision of a man, as the ESV heading says. And you could almost be tempted to think he was God, but listen to the descriptions in, in verses 5 and 6. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude." Now, if you've read Revelation 1 any time recently, you'll realize those are the, some of the same images used to describe Jesus. It's possible it's an appearance of Christ, but when you read down further, I think it's more likely that this is an angel who is just reflecting his Lord's glory as he serves him. He's glorious because the God he serves is glorious. And then the angel is described in, in verse 16 of chapter 10, and behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips, Daniel. And the ESV is interesting. Maybe they were trying to um, avoid a, a wrong interpretation, but quite literally, it's behold in the likeness of sons of man. Now, it's not son of man, but sons of man. You could see how you could make an argument that this angel is, is the son of man that comes. And in fact, these holy ones are angels who come and they do God's bidding as he's um, bringing just justice to the earth. Now, I don't think that's the right interpretation, but, but that's the argument. There's, there's a couple of reasons why I don't think that. First of all, let's just get it out of the way. The word holy ones can refer to people. Other places in the Psalms, holy ones are the saints. So just because a word is used one way in a book a couple other times doesn't mean it has to be used that way here. So just because it's angels in other parts of Daniel doesn't mean it has to be angels here. 
Another thing is that angels are glorious beings, but they are intermediate servants. Intermediate servants. They do not receive a kingdom. They're serving the kingdom. Angels are not destined to rule like human beings are. They don't fit so the sun language, the daughters of Adam, the daughters of Eve that we talked about last week. As, as glorious as they are. Well, you might say that's interesting, but it's still not arguing from Daniel. Well, here, if you look at close at Daniel 7, I think it becomes even clearer because it talks about the saints being oppressed by earthly kings. Well, angels can't really be oppressed by earthly kings in the way that saints can. Let's, let's just dig into this beast a little bit more in Daniel 7. Right, it's, he's described as having um, ten horns, ten rulers, rulers, a little horn, which which comes over the other horns as a plant. It's this whole little rulers, this, this this ruler that comes up and uproots some, and he's given power, and and then he becomes the personification, the one who tries to take away from God His glory. In fact, in verse twenty-five, it talks about how he shall wear out the saints of the Most High and try to think to try to change the times and the laws. And basically, here you have the beast who is oppressing the saints. Now, this, we said the fourth beast could refer to Rome, but here it's definitely the end times where this beast is different. This kingdom is different from everything else. And this horn has gone beyond anything else and is basically trying to wage war against God to take his stamp off creation and his saints. And by the way, you actually see that a little bit today when talking about changing times and laws, the way that God has made things, uh, when we talk about blurring the differences of gender, um, when we talk about how marriage is no longer sacred and that we don't even have to go to our current time. We could go back to where divorce was said it was a good thing in the 1930s. Or we could see how the Lord's Day is no longer considered holy. That's the spirit of the beast that is trying to wear out the saints, change what is good to what is not, and will oppress the holy ones. In the context of Daniel, the saints, the angels are fighting, but they're not the ones that are being put to the threat of death. That was Daniel. That was his friends. This message then are to those who are God's people. It would make no sense that these Holy ones who are oppressed would be angels. And in fact, we're not going to go there, but if you go to Revelation 13, you could look it up later, much of that imagery is drawn straight from this passage. And once again, it's not angels. It's the people of God who are being oppressed by the beast. And so, what's, why is it important, though, that we even and go through that? Why, why we talk about, well, are they angels or saints? I think it's pretty clear that they're saints. Um, well, as disappointed I am in some of these scholars who kind of miss some of the bigger themes, what they are saying is that, you know what? That, why is it that they misinterpret saints for angels? God's picture of glorified saints is pretty spectacular. So great that if you don't know what you're looking for, you might actually mistake them for angels. Right? We are creatures that are, are shown to be having so much glory when we are, when we are finally revealed um, what the Lord is going to do with us that some will convince, be convinced that we're, we're angels. 
Um, that certainly should that certainly should definitely change the way we think about people who are an obstacle to us now, right? When you have a person who's in front of you in line, you might just think they're you know they're in your way. Person who has just caught you off in traffic or has just irritated you. C.S. Lewis said in his Weight of Glory, famous essay, is the dullest person now that you might see on the street. If you saw him or her in their glorified sense, you might be tempted to worship them, right? So we are in the thick of the action here as God's people, and we're awaiting this glorification, receiving a kingdom of sorts. But then what about the king? What about last week? We said Jesus is clearly the son of, he's what that was waiting for, and, and the rest of the Old Testament talks about that. Well, we said last week that the, it's, it's clear that the saints are not enough to complete the picture, right? How Jesus comes, the, the Son of Man comes in the clouds, representing deity. Even angels in all their splendor are not depicted in a way that would somehow confuse them with God, as riding with the clouds are. In fact, in one of the Septuagint translations, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and there were several of them, there's several variants, and one of them says that the Son of Man comes not to the Ancient of Days, but he comes as the Ancient of Days. Now, you might want to look at the Septuagint as you do the message today, right? It's not inspired, it's somewhat of a paraphrased translation but it lets you know that people back, someone back then, certainly thought of this Son of Man as divine. And in fact, ancient Jews and Christians alike understood this figure as looking forward to the Messiah. And that's what Jesus claimed as himself. So how do these ideas work together? The saints receiving a kingdom, and yet the Son of Man somehow being uh, a divine Messiah. Well, there are some people who would just say, you know, it wasn't talking about the Messiah back then. But, you know, Jesus is Lord, and so he can create his own meaning, and we'll just accept that. We'll just live with that, right? Um, that is not what's going on here. What you see is a king who represents a kingdom. And a king represents his people. And, and here you see the people are given an elevated place of honor in the kingdom, which we can lose sight of, and yet there is the king. Often this is called corporate representation, where one person represents the whole of a group or a body, right? Just our president or our king would do that for a leader. Well, that all sounds nice and good, but what are the arguments for that, right? You can't just say, that fits our theology and that's nice. Well, we've already talked about how you have to have the saints, and yet more than saints. If you're looking at Daniel 7, there's really talking about both. Interestingly enough, you see this same thing going on in the beasts, Look at verse 17. In the interpretation of the vision, the angel says to Daniel, these four great beasts are four kings. They're four kings. And yet, in verse 23, he says there is a fourth, the beast is also a fourth kingdom. And so, on the one hand, the beasts can represent an individual king. On the other hand, they can represent a kingdom. So you see this one and the many representation going on, which makes perfect sense then that the Son of Man would also be a king representing a kingdom of saints. There's one other more, one other more important place that you can find this in the Old Testament. Just Someone, can you answer this for me? Who is the suffering servant 
in Isaiah. There's four servant songs in Isaiah. Does anyone know who the suffering servant is? Jesus. I heard it. I heard it, right? Okay. You guys are so timid. Um, Right? The answer is yes. And yet, if you spoke to a Jew who was serious, they would say, have you read Isaiah? Have you read Isaiah? Because there's four servant songs, and for the first two, if you read through them from basically Isaiah 41 to 48, it will say multiple times, Behold my servant Jacob. Behold my servant Israel. And God will talk about the nation. And they would say, see, the servant is Israel. You've got it wrong. Well, but what happens when you get past chapter 48? When you get past chapter 48 into 49, you now see the servant referred to in a singular sense of an individual doing something that will redeem not only Israel. So now you have Israel as the individual redeeming Israel as the nation. But God says, it's not enough for me that you will redeem Israel. I'll make you a light to the nations. So this one is going to serve the many by going out and not only Israel, but to the world. And then, of course, in the song of the suffering servant, in Isaiah verse 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. And, and it talks about how the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Right out of Leviticus 6, the Day of Atonement, it's one person who will redeem Israel. How can Israel as a group Redeem Israel as a group. It doesn't work. It needs one person. So the focus narrows. So you have the servant is Israel, but it has to be redeemed by one from Israel, who is God's Messiah. The one and the many go together. That is corporate identity. And that is the king who identifies with his people. Here's something amazing that you learn about in the Messiah when you stay in the Old Testament for a little bit. Look at Daniel 7. We think about the saints. What is it about the saints that the people of God suffer end-time tribulations, whether it's at the very end or, or just throughout history? They suffer these pangs and tribulations and persecutions at the hands of the beast. And they suffer them because the beast is the enemy of God and he wants to stamp out his image and his people in the world. Well, it follows if Jesus represents the saints then he too must go through some sort of ordeal or suffering at the hands of the beast. Except that in the surprising way of God, he suffers in many ways beforehand. And there's, there's been the travail of Israel up to the time of Jesus, but before the final times. Right? And, and this is why I would argue, among many reasons, why the last days in the New Testament starts with Jesus' ministry, the cross and the resurrection, because he has already suffered the end-time tribulations. It's already here. The cross and the empty tomb and is not barely connected to Jesus' return and our resurrection, as, as one of my professors would say. No, they are two episodes of the same event, intricately tied together. And I think this is how Jesus understood his mission as Messiah from Scripture. He studied Isaiah 53. He studied Daniel 7. He saw the one and the many and how the one would have to suffer for his people. 
The people of God cannot accomplish the mission that God had for them in Isaiah. That's very clear. God's calling, the, God's calling Israel to repent. He's calling his servant to repent until it comes to the Messiah. And that is why there must be one who will suffer for the sake of the many. So, what's the application for us tonight as we're looking at this connection between one and many, that we're kingdoms of priests and yet our Son of Man comes? I do pray that just digging in and seeing more about God's Messiah's application in itself. But here's one thing that I want to point out. The gospel is not self-help from Daniel. There has always been a desire for our humans to improve ourselves. We've had this ancient Egyptian wisdom, Greeks, Stoics, Babylonians, more contemporary, Joel Osteen. Um, and what's the gospel that Joel Osteen says? He wants, God wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. There's, you just gotta claim it and believe it, and God will give it to you. He'll give you your best life now. That's what Jesus wants from you. On the other hand, on the other far end of the spectrum, there's a guy like Jordan Peterson, who also, in his own kind of odd way, would quote scripture, though he, he's not, um, certainly is not uh, quoting it as a believer, and he says, you know, suffering exists. Life is pain, Highness, right? And you need to just understand that you can't avoid suffering. In fact, you've got to make it a point to embrace it and, and to do something about it, especially to the men out there in their, their mom's basements. You've just got to, you got to man up. And he will actually go so far to say, Jesus is a moral example on the cross of someone who embraced the suffering and he, he kind of embraced the myth chaos and came out on the other side. He was talking with someone who was not a Christian and said, um, I don't think that's a very Christian understanding of Jesus. But you see, both of these actually, if you're just looking at life, have some pragmatic value. Um, if you're optimistic on the whole, you'll be more likely to succeed. Joel Olstein, there's an abundance mentality of glass half full. Um, clearly, Jordan Peterson has struck a nerve with his books and teaching, especially men. Stand up straight and act, right? There's a place for this. But you know what you see from Daniel 7, and especially Isaiah, with Isaiah 53, that there is something very un-American about the gospel. You know, it's great to be optimistic unless you are in mortal danger of your life and can't do anything about it. It's great to do something unless the only thing that you can do actually digs you into further trouble. What Daniel says is that before the ancient of days, you can't go from rags to riches. You can't work your way up the ladder. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You are accepted only if you're connected to the shepherd who gave his life for you. You have to be connected to the one. I want you to think about the grace and mercy of God in all this. That he sent a suffering king for us. Can you imagine, just imagine, what would happen if um, Daniel 7 was the last word, talks about the saints receiving the kingdom. But can you imagine if it was up to the saints to slay the beast and to rule the kingdom on their own? Well, that's the Old Testament all over again, isn't it? That's, that's Israel get, coming into the land and, and failing. In fact, God argues with, this, with Jacob, his servant, and Isaiah, you have not remembered me. God knows that we can't fulfill his plan by ourselves any more than Adam. 
And so he comes himself. And yet, as you look here, he gives you and me the incredible privilege as living as kings and queens, receiving the kingdom under the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father, would you help us in the way that we look at this world to remember the incredible, ironic power of the gospel, of how Jesus came to serve and ended up giving up his life, and how we being connected are now somehow kings and queens. Would you undercut any pride? Would you undercut any false optimism, any self-reliance that we have, but that we could simply rejoice and then be sent out as servants of the Most High? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.